Hello, I am Philip Kennedy. Thank you for downloading this podcast of the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. We hope you enjoy listening to this. For more information about our programs, please visit www.nyuad.nyu.edu slash institute. Thanks, Tim, and thank you for the invitation. I had a lot of fun putting this talk together, so I hope you will uh, enjoy it as well as I enjoyed making it. It's not often you get to step back and think about why you do things and how, how they impact society, which I felt obligated to do for this evening. So it's a big black box. But before I start, let me start with a question for the audience. How many of you took a prescription drug today? So I take an Allopril, I have high blood pressure, decreases my likelihood of dying from a stroke. How about this week? This month? So coming close to the whole audience. Drugs have a very personal impact for each one of us in society. Our lives are better, we live longer, sometimes we're stronger when we shouldn't be, when we misuse drugs. They also have a pretty deep impact on society at large. You can largely credit the co-development of vaccines and antibiotics with nearly doubling lifespan in countries where those are both accessible. We went from an average lifespan of less than 38 to pushing 72 to 80, depending on what country you live in, between 1900 and now. So they're an important part of society as well. We don't talk a lot about how we make them. We don't think a lot about the impact on society of doing that well. So conventionally, people in my business will tell you it takes about 12 years, 12 to 15 years, to take a drug from an idea to the market. That's actually a shorter time frame than reality. That ignores all the failures. It ignores that we have to learn about disease before we can build a drug to treat it. It ignores other costs than the direct cost in time. And conventionally nowadays we'll tell you it's two to four billion dollar cash investment to bring a drug to market. So let's break that number down a little bit. Think about what it really means. It sounds like a huge investment. Half of that cost is failure to return on money you didn't invest in the stock market. So if I think about it as a banker or a financial officer, if I just took that same amount of cash at the beginning of a 15-year-long period and put it over in growth in stocks, it would be generating revenue every year. So we subtract that against the total cost. About a third of that cost is investments in things that didn't pan out basic research that was aimed at a disease but didn't elucidate a way to manipulate or suppress that disease. Compounds that we got into market development that failed further along in the process. I'll come back to both of those ideas a little bit later in the evening. So the hard costs are probably significantly lower than this. We know for a fact there are examples of drugs going forward into use that had less than $150 million total cash investment in that drug. Average real hard cost, probably somewhere around $500 million. Still a very, very large investment. 
Now, the most common metaphor we use to talk about drug discovery is a funnel. We talk about the pill down at the bottom of the funnel and all the time and effort and money driving towards that single marketable product. Many years to get there, lots of different things that we have to do, and lots of cash costs to going in there. The other most common metaphor for this is a pipeline. And both of those share an underlying thought. The thought is you, you know where you're going. That's a defined endpoint. And you shove a bunch of stuff in the top of this, whether it's funnel-shaped or pipe-shaped, and out the bottom comes what you want. So it's an engineering viewpoint of the world. Define problem, define machinery, feed the machinery, and you'll get what you want. And yet that is often not the case. That's why the costs are so high, because often we can't conceive how to arrive at where we want to go. And the reality is we often don't actually know where we want to go. We learn along the way. So this is an engineering problem the way it's commonly conceived. And I hope by the end of tonight I will convince you that's probably the wrong philosophical approach to doing this endeavor, and one of the reasons we struggle with it so much. So let me build this metaphor up a little deeper for you because I want to talk enough detail to let you know what I'm talking about and no more than that, I hope. So we break that further down into roughly nine steps. They start with what we call a target. Generically, we like military language in this field. We prosecute that target. Great, great language. So this is usually something like a protein, a um, maybe a nucleotide, but it's a, a defined entity that exists in a cell. We can make it as a reductionist tool, studied independently in most cases. We can construct very simple models. So right at the get-go, we're making an assumption that we can actually mirror the disease at that level of reduction. Okay, so if we thought about this like an engineering problem, let's say that this is the A380 I flew on coming here yesterday. And this level of reduction would say, I can hand you a child's toy that looks like an A380, and you will be able to discern from that toy everything that you need to know to make an airplane that flies. It's probably not correct. It also makes an assumption that there's a single thing wrong in the disease. Right? So we're gonna go, as we go down this funnel, from that very simple model to people, and then actually to market. So this goes from very simple to very complex uh, as we go through this process. And those kind of reductionist assumptions are present all the way through here. We assume that we can infer from the activity on the target what will happen in a cell in a body that contains that target. And that that cell is a good model for what happens in a tissue or in an intact animal. And in fact, that we can use an animal like a mouse to model what would happen in you if we were gonna give you a drug. So it, it's a, overall a philosophy of work that makes enormous assumptions about how well we understand what really goes on and how well that is mirrored in our constructing this engineering approach. 
So the strategy we use, because I probably don't have to tell you that those assumptions are incorrect, right? Reductionist models are always oversimplified. They never perfectly predict. Doesn't matter what field you're working in, that is the case. We assume that if we layer multiple models, maybe we try five different protein models, or three different cells, or two different animals, that the overlap of the response that we measure allows us to see a congruence, and that congruence is more representative of what really happens in a patient, both to measure the effect and to predict a side effect. Anyway, you look at that, this is a very expensive, very time-consuming, and very complicated process. All of those intermediate assumptions, but driven over the idea we can aim this funnel to the right spot, and we can feed into it what we need to in order to actually make it work. So if we think about this on a time scale, a typical project we might spend, once we're really working three or four years in this phase, before we touch a human with anything that we're doing, and really preloaded in that is all the knowledge gathering to allow you to identify what target you start with. That can be decades. And in fact, in an established disease like cardiovascular disease, the blood pressure example I just used for myself, we're building on 50 years of aggregated data. We have a very complicated and fairly precise model, and that's why it's relatively easy to find a drug there, nowadays at least. That's not true at all when we talk about a disease where we don't have drugs or a disease where we don't have enough money involved to motivate the entire gestalt of everyone in the world to work regularly on that disease over, over decades. So you go that, whatever that time period is before, another three or four years. This piece is usually much more controlled. It's generally about eight years or so once you start entering human modeling before you have something that could go into market use or you know that you failed and you can quit and go back. So, I'm investing, let's just say, a billion dollars. I'm going, let's just be conservative and say it's going to be seven years. At the end of that, in a big market, I'll get something that might generate a billion dollars a year in gross revenue. How comfortable are you in making that investment? A lot of money up front with no guarantee, right? very complicated system that may not deliver a product, gets even worse. So if you start actually looking at the statistics of failure, roughly one in 10 projects with a very well-defined initial target and a very well-defined final target, what drug you want, will survive the first half of this process. So that's assuming I have, let's say, a genetically validated single entity that I know I can manipulate, and I can prove that in a biological model, I still have a 10% success rate. Once I start touching people, again, I have about a 1 in 10 success rate. So roughly one out of 100 projects that we all firmly believed well enough in order to invest all that money and effort in actually survives to deliver a marketable entity at the end. So the only other industry I know 
that comes anywhere close to this level of risk is one you hold dear in your hearts here, oil exploration. And it shares the same kind of problems. We have good models, but we somebody still has to go out and dig a hole in the ground to make sure that you're actually going to deliver. And a lot of times those holes are, are dry. So what are the problems that underlie this as an industry? So you're trying to solve a complex problem. If, it's, if you want to make the most money, you want to be the first drug to market. That's what returns the most on your invested revenue. So what that means practically is no one has ever treated that patient in this way before. And you don't really know what's going to happen until you start using it on market. Nobody runs a clinical trial big enough to truly understand the positive or negative effects when you put the drug out into population. A really big clinical trial is 30,000 patients. There's only a handful that have ever been run at that level. A typical market we might go after is 100,000 patients a year or more. 100,000 is really kind of the baseline of where we think it's worth economically trying to put a drug forward. So it's a complicated, ill-defined process. I just spent some time showing you how we're assuming a logical underpinning that may be incorrect and engaging in this long and expensive process to cross over that framework. So at some level, I think it's amazing that this works at all. And on bad days, I get out of bed and think to myself, why am I doing this? I could be a banker, and instead I chose to do this. But it does work. We don't have a different way to do it. I'm going to spend most of the rest of this talk trying to convince you that I think there are some things we could do better philosophically. But this process is the best that we have. So let's go back to this funnel and talk about the two fundamental problems with it. The first of which is that we actually aim this the right way. So to do that, we start with what we want to happen in the clinic. You have high blood pressure. We want to lower your blood pressure because we believe that will lower your chance of dying from cardiovascular disease. So we have a clinical hypothesis. We know you're probably an aging man. You're the most likely person in this audience to suffer from this disorder. You probably eat too much salt. You're probably a little overweight. Probably don't exercise enough. So we have ideas about the comorbidities, ideas about how all of your organ systems are functioning that let us construct what we think we want in a drug. Right? And we use that to build a target product profile as the lingo. It's a document that describes what properties we want in that drug, what it will do in a patient to be useful. That's a single definition. So look around the audience right now. You have people of every color, height, weight, genetics, gender. Every one of you, if I gave you all the same drug, you're all going to respond to it differently. Real people are different from one another. So that assumption has to deal with that kind of variance in the patient population. And it can vary quite a bit. It's not uncommon at all to have a tenfold variance. Pick whatever measure you want that you're working on on a drug. But we have that logical definition to drive towards. 
We have all the machinery going in between those, and we connect it, as I described, back to a target at the top. So this first question is, how do you aim the funnel? If you do that wrong, if you don't define this the right way, you will fail. And just think about using a funnel. If you want to fill up a bowl because you're cooking, right? if you point the end of the funnel at the floor, it won't matter how much stuff you put in the top, it's not going to go where you want. And it's no different here. It's the same kind of logic driving it. So the other question is how do you avoid the garbage in to garbage out problem? Right? That whole construct assumes we know how to feed the funnel with the right stuff, the right experiments, the right models, the right molecules that could become a drug. That our whole model, from our most theoretical to the basic laboratory to the animal model, is a rigorous reduction of the patient. That it is not only logically constructed, but correctly constructed. And as I mentioned, in some areas, like blood pressure, this is really true. We can predict to a large degree how a drug will perform in a patient population based upon the model that we have. The only piece we really have that's unpredictable are the idiosyncratic, the individualized responses of patients. For other diseases, my favorite current example is Alzheimer's. This model is fundamentally incorrect. We cannot model Alzheimer's correctly with high fidelity in the laboratory in a way that gives us a truly predictive process to deliver an Alzheimer's drug. And you just have to watch the failure after failure after failure of Alzheimer's clinical trials to see that playing out. To really define that well, people will often ask me, what's a clinically validated target? And I laugh. And I say it's a target where we have a drug on market that has the effect that we want. And until we have that, we don't know that our logical underpinning is correct. Once we do, we can make more and more drugs more easily with every iteration. But that first one, the most profitable one, the one we care the most about, whether or not we care about profit, is the hardest one. And it's this issue, garbage in is garbage out. If it's the wrong stuff at the top, it won't matter how much you push in. A recipe with bad ingredients won't be tasty. So I'm going to briefly describe three ways of thinking about the business part of this. I'm going to first start with the aggressive venture capital model. Then I'm going to talk about the classic big pharma model, as we call it in the, U in the U.S., but the model that's used in large corporations. And then the not-for-profit model. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you details beyond a, a single slide for each one of those. So the, the venture capital model is built on the idea we want a rapid return for the investor, and we want that to be a high-yield return. So it's typically about a one-year to two-year investment frame. We want to push the money in the front end and get a product out the back end. Uh, and because of that, the way that we think about it is very constrained. So for example, Venture capitalists don't typically want to invest at all in anything early stage. I spend a good bit of my consulting time evaluating projects for these firms. And if you're not already in people or very close, they don't even want to talk to you. Now, they may want to invest in a technology they think is important or a unique kind of intellectual property, but that's a different framing. 
But when they spend that money, they'll give you, you know, say a million bucks up front. Less than a year later, and usually there's somebody leaning over your shoulder in every month of that year, they're going to want to know how well this is working. They're going to evaluate the return on investment roughly a year out, maybe 18 months if they're feeling really generous. And they're going to determine success or failure right then. Not five years from now, not what it might look like, but where are you at that very moment in time? You're having a good VC experience. You'll either be able to go forward or pivot, which is you've learned something that's critical enough that it'll convince them to allow you to continue going and maybe give you another round of funding. But much more commonly, the project will get terminated, your people will get fired, your asset will get sold off because you had to give it to them to get this money in place. I sound bitter, I'm not. This is just one way of dealing with the world. Or maybe I'm bitter with everybody. So let's talk about big pharma models. So the funny thing about big pharma that people don't realize is the clock isn't very different. So there's still an annual clock ticking here. So they'll select a project. Big companies are usually oriented around disease states. So they'll have a group, say cardiovascular medicine, that might have six or 10 projects running. But they have a constant competition amongst those products internally for funding that's judged on this kind of time frame. So instead of getting a, an absolute single project evaluation, you're now getting evaluated in a portfolio in comparison to the other things. Like a lot of portfolio kind of competitions, academics know these well. A lot of this has to do with how well you convince people around you that what you're doing is working, more so sometimes than the abstract measures. But there's a calculation of the return on investment for the company at that level. Again, they're going to detect success or failure and either terminate the project, pivot it, or, or keep it going forward. So what's different about a, a larger company is the context. So the company has some long-term vision of what they're doing. They have experience in this area generally. They have at least some institutional knowledge to base this kind of evaluation on, as opposed to the venture capital firm, which typically assembles the company and the funding just for this project and then disassembles it later. So the third paradigm for doing this kind of work is an academic or not-for-profit paradigm. The biggest difference for this is the time frame for that evaluation cycle is much more typically five years, three to five, depending on who's paying for it and what they're doing. So it's a longer frame already. You start these projects with a definition of a success measure. Maybe you say, I'm going to find a target, or I'm going to find a molecule that works on that target, or I'm going to develop a model. You go through a phase where you work on this. And then another critical difference about the academic model is you are allowed or indeed encouraged to redefine success. So there's not the hard kill response from your investor that there is in the other two models. And things like a discovery others can build on, a publication, or the same producible I talked about for the other frames, moving a drug forward to market, all of these count. So you can convince the investor to reinvest without having a tangible, workable product coming out the end of this time frame. So I positioned this last, and it sounds much better, right? 
more exciting, it's more free. So let's spend a little bit of time thinking about these in the frame that I introduced originally. Right, so the goal here is this pill that we can sell to somebody. And, and we have this long time frame to transit, and my pointer is going, um, and a lot of money to put in there. So if we think about these three models, I introduced the VC model as wanting to invest relatively late and for a short time frame. Maybe you'll get one or two cycles of this, but they're very linear in what they want and it's a very stringently evaluated reinvestment decision. Now the big pharma model I introduced with the idea that the sampling time is the same, but it goes over a longer time frame. So if we think about the VC model, we've got that limited time. It is a market-oriented model. They know where they're trying to go, but they are sampling once every year. When we go to the pharma model, Again, because of the way we do the managerial decision-making, we're sampling every year. There's that limited time frame in that sense, but they have a longer-term view because they're a bigger company with more orientation to total market and a broader portfolio. Now, what I didn't introduce with the pharma model that I will now, pharma companies, like most sectors, tend to reorganize about every 10 years. Some companies more often than that, some less. But you have this potential that comes along with reorganization to step sideways. So that blood pressure drug seemed really important. We worked on it for five years. We had a lot of success. Everything was looking really good. We got a new CEO, and he's like, I don't want a blood pressure drug. I want a diabetes drug. Right? So even though everything internally was working really well and you're ready to go forward, suddenly your management direction has swerved. And you can see this, um, you know, most of us in the sector have friends who left companies because that kind of thing happened. They came to work on Monday morning and by Thursday their division did not exist. Or even more insidiously, it moved from Harrods to Philadelphia. And who wants to jump a continent on a week's notice? So this model, while it's better than the VC model in terms of time frame and return on investment, tends to kill projects too early. And then I introduced the academic model, which had the, the advantage that the evaluation cycle is longer. You only need two or three times through the clock to get across the transit time to get to a drug. But it has the disadvantage I didn't introduce that it's typically not market-oriented. Um, we all know the typical caricature of a professor. In fact, some of you might have wondered, why is this guy in academia going to talk about putting drugs on market? Uh, when you knew I was going to give this talk, right? We're famous for having no orientation to the real world. And for good reason. It is, however, a model where you keep very strong connectivity, right? People in academia tend to work on something for their entire career. They know that area really well. They're really enthusiastic about moving it along. So they have those advantages that they can keep a project going. And because the outcomes, like publications, count, they can keep funding in place for that model. Where they run into trouble is the closer they get to the market, the less ability they have to keep pushing. Right? So all three of these models have problems. None of them is an ideal way to bring a drug forward to market. The VC model is great at getting people motivated because every single person at that company knows if I don't have a result next week and I don't keep that up every week for a year, I'm looking for a new job. 
there's nothing more motivating to keep you hard at work than that kind of pressure. Every academic has that motivation. My entire career is built around this very esoteric problem. I want to know everything about that, and I want to keep it going. Those two, if you had them together, might work better. But as standalones, they're all tough. So what we really need to do is spend less effort and balance it better. We need to drive this coherently towards a product that's useful for everybody, a product that teaches us, a product that treats a disease we can't treat, and a product that makes money. So I'm going to pause a moment to reframe the rest of the discussion. So I introduced this as a complex problem, a fuzzy problem, one where both intellectual rigor, that engineering, directed thinking is important, but also where freedom in thinking is important. We need to be able to survive the failures. We need to be able to move from model to model to model as the project goes forward. It has to be product-oriented. In the end of the day, we have to put that pill into a patient. If we don't deliver that, why are we doing this? All the knowledge in the world, if it doesn't serve humanity, is not useful. It's enjoyable. It's a foundation on which we can build other things. But in this context, it's the product that we're aiming for. I hope I've convinced you from all the different ways I've talked about the difficulty. We have to be agile in executing this, or we will fail. If we can't conceive a different way to get around a roadblock that happens every day in the process, intrinsically it's not an achievable goal. And what that means is we have to have some way of getting everyone working towards that common goal over decades. We have to keep them motivated in order to do this. We have to keep them oriented to the problem. We have to keep them working well. So I'm going to suggest we think about this the wrong way. Right? I just used metaphors of warfare, of engineering, of business to describe this. Most of us don't wake up in the morning and go to work because of that level of thinking. Those are processes we do at work because we're motivated by them. So I want to turn to this concept that comes from Japan of ikigai. You can translate this as, as a reason for being or a philosophy for living. And it's put together in this diagram. So there are really four parts of this that you root what you do in something that the world needs that that is something you can be paid for, because if you can't be paid for it, you can't do it with your life. That whatever you're doing is something that you love. You take personal fulfillment from the activity itself, not only from the delivery. And that it is something you're good at. So you take also that operational ability to this problem to engage with it fully in all parts of your life. So Ikigai is a personal philosophy. You can Google this and find books about how to find it in your own life. Um, that's indeed how I found it. One of those dark mornings that I didn't want to go to work because things weren't working. Um, you know, Google is a great way to, to learn philosophy. That's a joke. I'm a liberal arts product. Read books. Um, so what I want to do is contextualize this for drugs. So I'll walk you out from here 
to why I think it shows you a way of doing this problem. So I'm going to use, uh, for this metaphor, a problem I work on myself, malaria. It's a great unmet need in the world. It kills millions of children. It, it's a problem we don't address well. We have drugs on market now that are failing. We go through this 10-year cycle where we put a new drug out just barely. We only have that drug. It stops working. We all get excited and do it again. It is a problem where you can earn money in order to do this work. I've been continuously funded in my sector by a variety of entities, government, funding agencies, private partnerships, charities, um, companies, in order to do this. So there's sufficient capital in order to do it, and most drug discovery falls that way. So if I can get money to work on malaria, which frankly, whose market will generate very little revenue for most pharma companies, you can find money to work in most areas in drug discovery. It's something, this type of work, that requires and responds to love. So different kinds of love, love of the problem, right? You do this because that grabs you every day. Love of and friendship with people. You work with a really wide range of people all the time in this business. You get to know them, their good days, their bad days. It's a plethora of relationships you can have with people. And I think most importantly, love of doing things the best possible way, because you have to have that to succeed in this business. Otherwise, you'll just fall flat on your face. And then what I like about it, and one of the reasons I think this philosophy is applicable, is making drugs requires that best work. And it doesn't just require it of you. It requires it of a wide and diverse pool of people who bring many different talents and their diverse backgrounds to the problem. And I've, I've never worked on a drug discovery project that wasn't characterized that way, that wasn't international, that wasn't interdisciplinary, that didn't involve people of every different background you could imagine. You need that because that's the way you build flexibility of thought. Without all those different backgrounds, you're never gonna get anywhere. So I often tell people, I'm a farm boy. I grew up with my toes in West Tennessee mud. I didn't want to work on that farm because it's not pleasant getting up at four o'clock in the morning, right, chasing cattle around. So I had that motivation that every day, if I didn't get up and run another experiment, I'd be back on the farm. And some days I carried along other people who were a bit, quite a bit more economically privileged because I was working from that framework. And they were working from the idea of, hey, if we do this and it works, we're going to earn a lot of money and we can go to the opera. And I like the opera. So we both brought something to that problem. So let me walk you through this kind of thinking a little bit deeper. Let's talk about malaria for a few minutes. So it's a drug that affects, a, a disease that affects most of the world, three billion or so at risk. I apologize for the people who were in today's earlier talk. This is the only slide overlap. Um, 200 million cases a year, so a lot of patients. 600,000 deaths per year, most of whom are children. Causes 20% of the deaths of children on this continent, and that's a child a minute. It's a complicated disease. So it's a parasite vectored in between people by a mosquito. It has three different stages, one in the liver, one in the blood, and one in the, in the mosquito. So any kind of drug that we put 
into this disease has got to be able to deal with all that complexity. It's got to work in each of those places in order to prevent the disease from affecting the patient negatively and also prevent it from transmitting from patient to patient. It's a very complex disease when compared to other diseases that we work on. And as I introduced, it has a target product profile. In the case of malaria, there are two major goals, one of which is treating these acutely ill patients. We're really focused on the young children who die rapidly from this disease when they become acutely ill. So often we only have a few days to intervene when a pediatric patient is presented at a clinic. We also have a lot of ill patients. For most of us who've been exposed to the disease before, this is roughly equivalent to the flu. So it probably won't kill you, but it makes you awfully miserable. And if you live in sub-Saharan Africa, you may get 10 cases a year. So it has a significant impact on your livelihood and quality of life. So treatment's really important, but we're also trying to eradicate the disease. It's one of the key goals in the WHO World Health Plan because of all that economic burden and illness that it causes. So not only do we need to treat the individual patients, but we need to treat the population. We want to try to wipe it out. We know we can do that. In my part of the world, we had malaria in, until really the 1950s. We had, we have it seasonal there, it's a little easier to get rid of. We did things like code mandated window screens and bug spraying and had drugs and were able to wipe out the parasite that causes malaria throughout the United States, even though we still have the mosquitoes that carry it. So every spring where I live, you can get bitten, and if you come have a barbecue in my backyard, I can tell you which mosquito could transmit malaria. We have four species in Lexington. One of them is a malaria transmitting one, just no malaria to move. So both of these goals are in place, and they're very different products, right? One of these costs is less problematic when you're treating somebody for a couple of days, and they're really ill. They're willing to pay more, and you don't have to spend that time, that money over a long frame of time. If you're trying to treat a whole village, it's much more expensive and much lengthier, and the needs for the drugs are different. So we've approached this using the academic model that I introduced, and I introduced the concept of this with less process, less overhead, and more time. So if you look in our, in our shop, we spent about $5 million in about eight years, in the discovery phase, and about four million in four years in the development phase, and then about two million in two years each in the first two stages of clinical development. So if you think back to the numbers I introduced, the conventional industrial way of thinking about cost, this sounds absurdly low, right? I was saying minimum cost is probably $150 million, and here we are at $13 million. So why is it that way? Well, part of the reason it's that way is I, I'm standing on the shoulders of a lot of giants. There's a lot of model understanding that we didn't have to invest in. The other reason it's this way is we're able to leverage really heavily in the academic sector. Now, it's going to get more expensive as we go forward, Phase three is probably 20 or $40 million. We'll probably wind up at $100 million if we go to market. But we've been able to get this far using that paradigm. 
so we can get paid for doing this. Now, let me talk a little bit about the love part. I think this was, for me, what crystallized this way of thinking. So I'm going to introduce this two ways. The first of which is this is my friend Joe. So Joe and I were assistant professors together at UCSF. Joe developed a technology you may have heard of called the microarray. It's a way of doing genomics experiments. He did that as a graduate student, and then we were both recruited to UCSF as part of a cadre of technology-oriented people who wanted to move the needle in the way we were doing biology. So you might think, you know, Joe and I started working together right away because we were all into this sexy new technology and so on. Actually, sort of that's what happened, but really we met and we, over a beer, and we talked about things that we liked outside the laboratory, like fishing and automobiles. So our friendship started before we did anything together in the laboratory. So I'm a dean now. Joe runs the Chan Zuckerberg Institute. We've both gone up quite a bit in leadership, but 20 years later, we still work together. So this is one part of love. It's platonic love of an individual. It's a relationship that we built at the very beginning. We actually started working on malaria together as a test bed for colliding two of the technologies we were interested in. So the motivation about the market came later. It was actually the person I was working with and the things, the ideas that we were working with together that motivated this project the first really five years or so uh, that we did it. And that became a, a critical node in the other part of what's really important in drug discovery. So every drug that goes to market goes to market because of hundreds of people working on it. In the pharma model, those people are brought together by the structure of the company. And they're defined by who's at that company, who's on the bus. So one advantage of doing this by a model that's driven more philosophically by a desire to do it together, by the enjoyment of friendship, by the relationships that build this, is what I will call a flexible network. So this is the network that has worked on my project. So me and Joe at the top, a friend of mine who ran chemistry at Bristol-Myers Squibb and then Pharmacopeia, David Floyd, who I met on the scientific advisory board of Medicines for Larry Adventure. He did a lot of the chemistry. Another friend who was at Walter Reed working on malaria for the Army. Friends at GSK, at SRI, at ASI, these are companies. But we began working with these because of those personal relationships. The charity I mentioned, Medicines for Malaria Venture. Other friends in Australia who work on mechanism and pharmacology. A contract company in India. A, a clinician who I happen to work with at St. Jude who worked on cancer therapy but stepped up to run the phase one trial because he was Indian and really interested in malaria. He understood the impact of it on his people. So this network exists because of the people in it. The problem pulls us together. It keeps us talking to one another. A lot of it's met around this problem, but we work together because we want to work together. We enjoy one another's company. We enjoy the process of doing something together. We find common ground intellectually 
that makes us work. So it's the love, the love of the people, the problems, the working together that keeps the machinery going, much more so than the money. Yeah. Let me show you a little bit about how this works, and that got strangely misanimated, so you'll just have to live with me. Um, so I mentioned this problem of aiming the funnel and filling the funnel, and so what Joe and I got out of our early work Everybody who was working in this problem was working on a handful of well-known targets. We had a really concrete way of conceptualizing the problem, and it didn't necessarily move us where we needed to go. So Joe and I got really frustrated because it was not working and not working and not working. And we stepped back and we said, well, let's just think about this differently. What do we really care about? We care about killing the parasite. We don't really care how we do that or why it dies. All we really care about is that we kill it and we don't kill the human who's hosting it. And we reframed the whole problem from that perspective. We threw out all of our intellectual underpinning and our fancy models and went back to that very simple idea. So that was fundamentally what we contributed as a pair. We brought in that with that framework other people in that network in order to find molecules that worked and move them forward with a different subset of the network and finally into the clinic with yet, well, yet another subset in this, this part done in, the, in America, this part done in Australia, this part starting up in Peru right now. So you can see how that whole circle, they don't all do everything. Pieces of it pull together to work on an individual part of the problem to move us from point A to point B in the series but we're flexible and agile. We can work together when we need to. We can wait a year or two and be happy about that and come back together when the project takes us there. So I want to suggest this is the way we should think about drug discovery. So we seek that commonality that comes in Ikigai, a way to pull together all the things you need to move a drug to market the goals, the people, the passion, and the money. Find a way to keep them all oriented collectively over a decade, a way that doesn't require a particular business framing or a particular intellectual underpinning, that requires a community and a desire to be centered and balanced and happy. Those are the things that keep us together, keep us moving forward. And I think in that context, when you think about your partnerships that way, you can do whatever you need to do to bring a drug to the market. Whether it's a drug that's gonna earn a lot of money and serve that kind of need, or a drug that's gonna cure a lot of patients who don't have any money and serve that kind of need. The commonality is in the way we frame and drive the problem and in finding that center. And I will stop there and just leave you the completely unreadable list of all the people who actually directly touched that project that I talked about, and I'm happy to take questions. You've been listening to a download from the NYU Abu Dhabi Institute. You'll find more information on our website, www.nyuad.nyu.edu institute.